Imagine, uh, imagine with me for just a moment that the Orioles win the World Series this year. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Like, let's just say they make it to the playoffs. They go through the playoffs. They get into the World Series. If, if you are a, an Orioles fan, and if... Uh, and if they are in the World Series, late October, there's not much else on your mind this year. You're thinking about baseball, the Orioles. And let's just say on November 1st, seventh game of the World Series, ninth inning, tied, a home run is hit by the Orioles, center field, over the wall, and they seal it. They win the World Series. Assuming that you're an Orioles fan, how do you feel? I hope that's not the response. <laughs> All right, they, they won. You would be, uh, <laughs> you'd be like ecstatic, overjoyed. You probably would look a little crazy. Um, excited passions. You'd be jumping up and down, doing a little dance, shaking your coke and spraying it all over the place, right? And then uh, you get up the next morning, 6.30, to go to work. You go to work. You realize that the game's over, that they won the World Series, and you don't get a pay raise or anything. You go to work just like any other day, now we're in the football season. Baseball's done. Now we're looking at the Ravens. Now, now how do you feel? The, the next day, and the day after that, and the day after that. What happens is this, with any event, I don't want to just pick on sports, but we're kind of in the middle of, like I see half the people wearing some kind of sports t-shirt today. Uh, with, but with any, any kind of event that makes us excited, that sort of arouses our passions, when it's done, what happens to our passions? They usually just kind of fizzle out. Like, I was excited. I've been excited. I, don't, I can't tell you how many times about various teams that I'm, like, rooting for, and then they win. And then the next day, it's like, oh, I still have to go to work. I still have to, get, I still have to pay this Verizon bill. And so our passions, our excitements, the things that we really sometimes pour a lot of energy into, a lot of passion, uh, they, they fade. They tend to fade. They do fade. And then sometimes we wonder, like, what's next? What's the next event that's going to get me excited? What, what else do I have now to look forward to in life? Is, is life? is life nothing more than like an onion where you just keep pe peeling away the layers you keep peeling away sort of the, the layers of, of, of events, the layers of life, and you get to the core and you realize that you peeled away the last layer and there's nothing there. Imagine with me another scenario, all right? So that's, that's the excitement, passionate side. Imagine another scenario. You get a phone call from a friend. It was an untimely death. He's got a, he had a family, he had a wife, he had a kids. How could he have 
died so young. Your friend on the other line is weeping. You begin to weep. You begin to ask questions. Why? What, what could I have done differently? Is there, is there something that I could have said that would have made him drive differently, slowed, slow the car down? Is there something I could have done? Why did this happen? Why, why do we live in this world with so much pain? Is there any meaning to all of this? Or is life simply like an onion and you just start peeling away the layers of life and you peel away this event and you go to the next? And then you peel away that event and you go to the next and you hope that the majority of the layers of your onion are events which bring happiness and passion and excitement into your life as opposed to pain, loss, and discouragement. But we just kind of keep living. We just pull away the next layer. Okay, what's next? What's the next event? What's the next layer of life? And then as we keep going, as we keep getting down to the bottom, as we pull away that last layer, is it like an onion and there's just nothing else there? No real meaning to our passions. No real meaning to our excitement. No real meaning to our pain, to our discouragement, to the loss. Revelation 4 and 5, which is what Andrea just read, gives us a glimpse um, into what we should be most passionate about. Not only should be most passionate about, but it gives us a glimpse into what we as Christians will be most passionate about for all of eternity. If you have your Bible, turn, turn to Revelation 4 and 5. If you need a Bible, it'll be good. We, we're covering two chapters today. It would be good to uh, follow along. Just raise your hand. Kwame will get you a Bible. Some, some hands in the back. Revelation chapters 4 and 5. If uh, you're new to the Bible, Revelation is the last book. So if you open up the back of the book, you're going to find Revelation. Chapter 4. And chapter 5 is where we're going to be at today. What we're going to dive into is possibly what is, I think, the most, one of the most uh, beautiful and the most chilling, dramatic pictures that we see in the entire, in the entire New Testament. And what we find in Revelation 4 and 5 is this. I want to give you a quick kind of brief summary. Dude named John is given an opportunity by God. God allows him to sort of peer through the onion, if you would, to, be, to peer through all of the different layers of life and to, and to see the core, to see the, the center, to see the end of it all. And what John sees there as he peers through this onion, if you would, if he, as he peers through all of the layers of life, What he finds at the center is something that is so beautiful, something that is so dramatic, so haunting in a way, so electrifying that words really fail to describe what he's seeing. But I think he does his very best job in explaining it to us. He sees that there is actually something at the core of life. There actually is something at the end of life. And what he sees there at the end is a throne. 
And what he finds is that this throne, this picture of what he's seeing, what we're going to see in these two chapters of Revelation, what he finds is the very meaning of life, why we exist, what we're living for, what we're moving toward, and what we're going to be doing for all of eternity. I think this is a great time to go to Revelation 4 and 5. We are in the fall. We're at the beginning of, um, in, in many ways, a new year. I know it's still 2012, but fall starts a new year for a lot of you. People are going to school. Some of you have got new jobs. A number of you have new babies. There's newness to life right now. And we're gonna, about to jump back into fall and into the busyness of fall into the busyness of life and what we're going to be doing over the next however many months, what you're going to be doing is peeling away these layers of life. You're going to be looking at this event, you're going to be looking at this class, at this job, at this child, whatever it is, and you're going to start working through that and you're peeling away these layers of life. And before we dive into that this fall, before we sort of dive into our lives, I want to remind you why we're doing what we're doing. I want you to be reminded of what I think many of you already know, and I want you to learn what you don't know. And that is at the very center of it all, at the very end, at the core, is something more beautiful than you can imagine. And it's something worth living your life for. Everybody on board? Yes? All right. Let's, uh, let's, let's start with a word of prayer. We're going to dive into Revelation. God, we ask you to open our eyes to your word this morning. We recognize that these are uh, powerful words in that uh, you have inspired them. They, are, uh, they, they carry your weight. And so, God, I ask that you open our eyes to its truth that you take my words as I try to deliver this, this message and try to explain what we're seeing in this text. Do something in our hearts. Do the work that we cannot do on our own. And that is convict us, move us closer to the image of your Son. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me, like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had had the appearance of jasper and carmelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And so here John is peering through life He's seeing the end, he's seeing the core, and what he sees here at the core is a throne. The throne signifies God's control, it signifies his, his sovereignty. As a matter of fact, throne, the word throne is used in Revelation more than the word heaven. So when we're looking into heaven and eternity, what we're seeing is the word throne. It's used 50 or 60 times. Revelation uh, 1 through 3, the, the first three chapters of this book were written to Christians who are being tempted to compromise, Christians who are under persecution, Christians who are, who are realizing that it would actually be easier to take this sort of fleshly, worldly path than it would be to remain in the faith. 
It would be easier on my life if I were to just renounce all of this faith stuff that I know and just live according to the passions and the desires of the flesh and the world. And so for these Christians, some of them are compromising. Some of them are falling away from their first love. Some of them are falling into the flesh, into the desires of the flesh, into the world. Some of them are, are, are trying to remain strong. Some of them are trying to, to remain faithful to what they know to be true. And what God is saying here to them is this, and He's saying this to us, I'm in control. Like I'm sitting on the throne. At the center of it all, right now, I am I'm on the throne. I'm sovereign. I know things seem chaotic right now. I, I know things seem out of control right now. But you have to know that I still am seated on the throne. So don't compromise. Don't give up yet. Keep pushing. And then he goes on. So he sees this throne. Then around the throne are 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders. Let's just stop right there really quick. It would be helpful to know who the elders are. There are 13 different interpretations, ideas, as to who the elders are right here. Everything from uh, angelic beings, 24 angelic beings, to uh, a representation of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 disciples representing humanity or God's people. And then there's 11 other interpretations, all right? So with that said, moving on. There are 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. Check these things out. Full of eyes in front and in back, behind. The first living creature, like a lion, the second creature, living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say. So he sees, I want you to just track with this story, I want you to get this picture of what he's seeing. He peers through, he sees a, a throne, he sees these 24 elders seated around the throne, he sees these ghastly looking creatures Four of them with eyes all over the place and eagle, faces of eagles and oxes and lions. And they're all just kind of like around this throne. And then this is what he hears coming from the four creatures. They, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Now, holy, holy, holy. In, in Judaism... If you repeated something once, so if you said a word two times, that meant great emphasis. So holy, holy means a whole lot of holiness. If you repeat something three times, which is very rare, it, is, it, it signifies this idea of the infinite. Meaning holy, holy, holy. What we're seeing here, what they're saying over and over, day and night, they never cease to say it means he, God has an infinite amount of holiness. His holiness never ends. Holy, holy, holy. So here, John's peering in. He's looking at it, and it's as if these creatures are just 
surrounding the throne, the only thing that can come to their mind or the first thing that can come to their mind that comes through their mouth is holy, 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 like the infinite amount of holiness. And then they repeat it again over and over, day and night. They never cease to say it. Who was and is and is to come. Again, this is written to Christians who are being tempted to compromise. Christians who are living in a very difficult world. And it would be much easier to follow the world and to follow the flesh than it would be to continue following the Spirit. And what he's saying is this. God not only was, like we know He was, and He not only is going to be, but He also is. So God is at the beginning. God is at the end. But what he's saying is, Christian, you have to understand that God is also in the middle. Right now. He is on the throne now. He is in control now. He is sovereign now. And in His sovereignty, He is absolutely holy to the infinite degree. Holy, 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 they sing, is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Verse 9, And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders... They fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns, which refers to just anything that they have. All of their goodness, all of their beauty, all of their weightiness, all of their worth is cast toward the throne. They cast their thrones before, or the crowns before the throne and they say, verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. The point of chapter 4 is that God is sovereign. He's created all things and by, by Him all things exist. God is infinitely holy and He deserves every bit of our glory, our power, our worship, our love. And then the vision continues. It doesn't stop there. It continues. Let's, let's just go with it. Then I saw at the right hand of him who's seated on the throne a scroll. Now the scroll refers most likely, I believe, to the redemptive plan of God, to the judgment that's going to be poured out. We see that throughout the rest of Re- Revelation. As the scrolls open, the judgment's poured out. And God's redemptive plan then is, is fulfilled. So here is this scroll. Alright, let's just go with it. I see a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And I began to weep. Now if the scroll indeed holds the final act, the final bit of God's redemptive drama, like this is, we need to open the scroll in order for God to finish His work of restoration and redemption in the world, in order for God's plan to go forward and for all things to be restored unto Him. The scroll must be opened. And nobody is worthy of opening it, that is reason to weep. That is cause for tears. 
And so John here then begins to weep loudly, he says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered it so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Now look what he sees. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And so in the center of this circle, in the center of this beauty, all of a sudden there's this bloodied lamb in the Old Testament because of sin, because God's people would sin, they were required to take a spotless lamb and to cut its throat and to offer it as a sacrifice. Blood is required for sin. And so God made a provision through a lamb for your sins to be covered. And so in the Old Testament, they would symbolize this by cutting the throat of the lamb and that blood of the lamb then was the provision for their sins, pointing to a better sacrifice. So Jesus then was the better sacrifice. He's seeing here this lamb who was slain, bloodied. The wool is no longer white. It's drenched in red. Its throat open. But it's not dead. This lamb is standing as if it's been slaughtered. It's alive. And then look what he says about this lamb. There it is, standing with seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang A new song. Look at their song now. Worthy are you to take the scrolls and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy are you. This is the same words that are used when they begin praising the one on the throne when they begin praising God, meaning the Lamb who's standing there, slain, is worthy of the same kind of honor, the same kind of praise, the same glory as God. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and through your blood you have ransomed people for God. Then at this point, it's as if the the, the camera just kind of pulls back And John gets a bigger picture of what's going on right now. He says, then I looked, in verse 11, then I looked, and around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So it's like the angels, he's seeing them all, these spirits. He pulls back and it's like everywhere he looks are thousands and thousands and myriads and myriads of angels and together saying with a loud voice, and I can't imagine how loud this must have been, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then the camera pulls back even farther. Look at verse 12 or 13. Then, and then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and might forever and ever. So every single creature now lifting up their voice and joining in this like him for this Lamb who's been slain. Worthy are you of everything. Every bit of our honor. Every bit of our might. Every bit of our glory. Every bit of our prayer. Worthy are you. This crazy voice. And then it zooms back in. The crowds seem to hush. And John sees this. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. I want to be part of that worship service right there. That's powerful, isn't it? Like, I mean, this is a picture, this is a glimpse of where we're going as human beings, as people who are saved by God, as God's people. This is where we're heading. This is a picture of where we're heading. I want my life to make sense. The life that I'm living now, I want it to make sense then. When I'm part of this worship service. When I'm throwing my crown, when I'm all of my glory and all of my power, I'm putting it on to God and to the Lamb which has been slain. I want to live a life now that makes sense then, I remember when I was called into, uh, or when I sensed God calling me into ministry, um, I didn't, it wasn't vocational ministry, quote unquote, it wasn't pastoral ministry, I just realized that I have to live my life um, serving God in, in, in some fashion. What I was wrestling with at the time uh, was, was this. I was a sophomore in college and I wanted to make a lot of money. I wanted to work a job where I could make a lot of money. Like that was my goal. I just want to get a job that pays really, really well. I don't care what I do. I just want to make a lot of money. Like this is what I was thinking. And then it, I'm thinking at the same time, like, I'm feeling more and more this sense that God's just saying no. Like, don't waste your life just trying to make money. Why don't you spend your life, why don't you do something with your life that makes sense of all of eternity? That when you're in eternity... And today, I will say the same thing. I, it's a, I, I daily wake up and I'm just like, I want to live a, a, the kind of life that makes sense when I'm part of this worship service right here. And it's a daily battle. I want to 
go through just a couple observations from this, from this passage. If you have a pen and paper, you might want to jot these down. Jot these down. Some initial observations. Number one, God is worthy of your passion. And when I use the word passion today, uh, or ex- excitement, or glory, let me just, a little quick teaching point right here. Because we say all the time, give God your glory, what, or give God glory. What does that mean? This is how I explained it to my kids the other day. Um, if my child were to make uh, 40, that, that was their number, 40 heavy gold necklaces with diamonds, silver, and emeralds, all right? They built those in their mind. And they made them for themselves to wear. Essentially, that is glory. That's bringing glory to themselves. So they created something to show off their natural beauty. So when we talk about giving God glory, what we're talking about is this kind of weightiness of life. Actually, the word glory itself, kave, it literally means weighty. So in the, in the ancient world, if you were wealthy, you would be considered very weighty. Like you had a lot of these gold necklaces. You had a lot of stuff. You walked around very, very heavy. You had a lot going for you. And then if you are someone who was worthy of glory, what that meant was because you have such stature in the community, because you have so much weightiness, then you're worthy of receiving others' uh, glory, weightiness. And so then someone might come along and give you their stuff. They might place their necklace that they made on you, and that is them giving you glory. That is them throwing their stuff on you throwing their weightiness on you. So then the question is this, what weightiness do we have as human beings? It's everything. It's, it's our identity. It's our stuff. It's our jobs. It's our money. It's our talents. You name it. it it's, it's you. And when we seek to keep our weightiness for ourselves, to build up our identity just to build ourselves up, then that's keeping glory for ourselves. And God demands every bit of our glory. God demands every bit of our worship and our love and our weightiness. And so then we are called, and what we're seeing here in Revelations 4 and 5 is that we're throwing our crowns, we're throwing our weightiness, we're throwing our passions, our excitements, all of it goes on to Him because He's worthy of it. So God then, going back to my first point, observation number one, God is worthy of your passion Because he is infinitely holy. God is worthy of your passion because he is infinitely holy. I hear this all the time. I hear Christians who are jaded because they have been told that they are to love God and worship God and give God their passions because of what God has done for them. Because of the many blessings that God's given them. Why, do, why should you love God? Well, because God has blessed you. Why should you worship God? Why should you give God all of your passions? Because 
Look at everything God's done for you. Now here's the problem with that. When, when things go sour in this Christian's life, when things go wrong in this Christian's life, and they're looking around, and they don't really see a whole lot of good things anymore. They don't see many blessings anymore. Then what? We see it all the time. They give up. They walk away. They become apathetic. How can I worship God? What, what do I have to love God for? I mean, I've got, I've got nothing. I've lost everything. My life, my life is a joke right now. God hasn't come through for me. And so then they deny God. You see, the, pro- the problem with that mentality is, number one, it's the most self- self-centered reason to love God. It's the most self-centered reason to worship God because of what God has done for you. We are not called to simply, now we are called I'm not saying that we're not called to to worship him for the good things he's done for us. We are indeed called to give God thanks for the many things that he's given us. But that is not the first and foremost reason we are called to give him our worship and our love and our passions. As a matter of fact, the angels, they don't even know the redemptive love of God. The angels, they don't know what it's like to be lost. They don't know what it's like to be broken and to live in darkness and to live in sin and to have Christ die for their sins. They don't know what that's like. Yet they still worship God. And why do they worship Him? Because He is holy. Because God is infinitely holy. And so then we are God is worthy of every bit of our passion and every bit of our excitement, not just because He has done good things for us, but because He is holy. This is the God who appeared to Moses in a burning bush. You know that story? And Moses is observing this bush, and what he's realizing is that the bush is not being consumed by the fire, yet it's The fire is there. I mean, it's in the bush. What does that mean? It means that God's presence, which was found in that flame, God's flame is not dependent on the bush. It it exists entirely in and of itself. And God's flame grows not dependent on anything. He is completely set apart. He is completely holy. He is completely self-existent. And so as Moses then is in the presence of that bush, it's flaming, God's presence is there, Moses is told to take off his shoes because he's in the presence of this infinitely holy God. And then we know later on, Moses is, uh, asks this same God if he can get a glimpse of his face. And what does God say? No. Like if you, if, you, if you were to look directly into my glory, if you were to look directly into my holiness, it is so great, it would kill you. You can't take it. So God then pa- he puts, puts Moses in this rock and God passes by and covers his eyes 
and then he allows him to just kind of see his back and to see his glory. And even because of that, Moses is glowing when he goes back down the mountain. God is infinitely holy, and we are called as his people to worship him for his holiness. Because he is that set apart. Because if we were to look into his glory, it would kill us. It is impossible to see the depth of how beautiful he actually is. And so we're called to worship him for that. And he's worthy of our passions for that. Secondly, God is worthy of your passion. He's worthy of your passion because he is. Because he is. Capital I and capital S. We know that he was. Like We know that God was in control in creation, right? God created the world. We know that God is to come. And we can see that. We can jump forward into Revelation 21 that God will be again ruling all things. What we forget is that God is today. That He is at the beginning and He's he's at the end, but He's also in the middle. He's with us now in this moment. I was hiking with my daughter, and I hope you don't mind me sharing this, Jaden. I was hiking with my daughter in Western Maryland a couple weeks ago. We went out there for a couple days. And so, so we're like in this little house, and uh, it's out in the middle of nowhere on top of a mountain, woods surrounding it. Jaden, by the way, says um, that she was going to move to the Bahamas when she um, grew up. But because it's so beautiful here, I decided that I'll move here to Western Maryland, and it's closer to home. So I guess Western Maryland trumps the Bahamas in beauty. I never knew that. So we, we go, her and I go hiking through this woods, and we go pretty deep out there. We're kind of taking this path, all these different turns. And, and it's starting to get dark, and we realize we've got to start hiking back. So I want to test Jaden's sense of uh, direction to see if she has any clue how to get back. And so I say, uh, so, I, so I tell her, I'm like, why don't you lead, lead the way back? And she looked at me like, no, I think you should lead the way back. <laughs> and I said, no, why don't you lead the way back? I want to see if you can. And she was like, okay. So we're walking along. And we get to like the first why, and I'm like, so which way should we go? And I'm looking at her, and she's like, uh, that way. I'm like, so I don't tell her that I know that that's right, all right? I'm just following her direction. But it is right, by the way. So we head that direction, and then we get to the next why. And I'm like, all right, which, which way are we going? And she's like, uh, that way. And she's right again, but I don't tell her. I'm just like, all right. That's the way you want to go. So we start walking that direction. And it's getting dark, by the way, all right? Keep that in mind. So we walk about maybe a quarter of, quarter of a mile, and I look over, and she has tears in her eyes. And she goes, Daddy. And I'm, I'm like, so I get down, and I'm like, what's the matter? Are you, are you afraid? And she's like, yes. And she starts crying. And I'm like, what are you afraid for? She's like, because I don't know where we're going. I don't know how to get home. So I like grab her shoulders and I look at her in her face. I'm like, Jaden, I know where we're at and I know where we're going. And we'll go home. She grabs my hand 
and I lead the rest of the way home. See, this is life right there. We are in the midst of it. And often we, because things are chaotic, because we don't know exactly which way to go, and it's getting dark, we start to wonder, does he really have my best interest in mind? Is he re- are we really going to end up home tonight? Are we really heading in the right direction? And as we're tears welling up, Daddy, we're crying, this is God in Revelation 4 and 5 grabbing our shoulders saying, I'm on the throne. I know where you're at and I know where you're going. I know the way home and we are going to get there. So God is worthy of our worship because he is infinitely holy, but also because he is with us now. He is on the throne now. He has chosen to remain with us and to be with us and to allow us to grab onto his hand and be led by his spirit. He's worthy of our passion because he is. Thirdly, God is worthy of your passion now just as he's worthy of your passion later. All right? He's worthy of your passion now just as he's worthy of your passion later. See, this is what we do all the time. We're like, I know that one day I will worship God and I will, I will give him all my glory. I'll cast my crown at his feet. I know that, but right now in this life, I'm dealing with this. I need this. I want this. I know, but. So it's, it's I mean, and we, anybody out here who calls yourself a Christian will probably agree with me that you know that on the other side of eternity, you will forever want to give God everything you have. Yet, how much of your life reflects that today? Do you really, do you really know it? I heard uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, one time, he said, he said that uh, those, those people who say, I know, but, so like, I know that I'm supposed to put God first, but um, I really, I really want to go this direction right now. Or, I know that I'm supposed to pursue the spirit over the flesh, but she is really hot right now. Or whatever. So like, we say, I know, yet our life then does something else. What Keller says is, you don't really know it. Because like, if you really knew it, you would do life differently. If you really knew the truth, if you really knew that this is at the core and that life is not like an onion, that that there's something there that's more beautiful and magnificent than anything you can imagine and what's there is worthy of every bit of your passion and every bit of excitement, if you really knew that, then you would live differently today. He is worthy of your worship now just as he is worthy of your worship later. 
I was sitting with a, a group of pastors and uh, a, a young man came in who uh, has struggled with pornography for um, a long time. And uh, he confessed that he had been struggling with it for a year and uh, he had been lying to his accountability partner about it. Um, and he wanted to confess it to the pastors and get some, get some thoughts, some advice. Um, and so the pastors kind of went around one at a time and just gave him advice, gave him thoughts on how to conquer this ongoing issue of pornography in, in his life. Until it got to one pastor, which when he gave his thought, uh, convicted my own spiritual state, convicted my own soul, and probably a number of the other, the others in the room. He he looked at the guy. He kind of like leans on the table, and looks looks at the young man directly in the eyes, and he says, "I just wonder if you're wasting your life." And then he followed that up. He said, "I wonder how you're spending your free time." I wonder if you're just wasting it. I wonder if you're just looking at a screen. Just going to, to books or to other things to, get, to make you excited, passionate. I wonder how you're spending your free time. I wonder if you're wasting your life. That's the question I want to ask you, and it's the question that continues to go through my mind. I wonder if you're wasting your life. What are you most excited about? What are you most passionate about? What wakes you up in the morning? How much of that will make it into the history books of heaven? How much of that will make any sense on the other side of eternity when we're part of this kind of worship service and we're seeing the lamb that was slaughtered. I wonder how this might affect the way you do your job, the way you parent. I wonder how this might affect the way you spend your free time. Do you spend your free time seeking to bring glory to yourself or do you spend it seeking to give glory to God? worth all your worship, worth all your power, worth all your praise, worth all your money, worth all your stuff, worth all your free time, worth everything that you are. I wonder if you're wasting your life this morning. Now at some level, at some level we are all convicted at that point. And if I were to just end my sermon here, you would all walk out of here guilty. God has looked at each one of us and we have received a guilty verdict. Because we, as much as we try, I mean, this flesh is so thick, we continue to go back to the old way of thinking and living life. And it is a daily, ongoing battle to even figure out what it means 
to give God our worship and to give God our passion and to give Him our praise and to give Him everything that we've got. And we continue to drift back towards selfishness and self-centeredness. And we're all, I mean, the, the, the gavel comes down and we've all been given a guilty verdict. Let me ask you this. Why do, why, as John's peering through life and he's seeing this scene unfold, he sees the throne, he sees the 24 elders, he sees the four living creatures. Why is it that when the lamb is seen, when the lamb steps forward into the spotlight, everything goes crazy? The angels go crazy. The creatures everywhere go crazy. Why is that? I want to go back to it. Worthy are you, it says. Worthy are you to the Lamb to take the scroll, to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Why does all of heaven go crazy when the Lamb steps into the spotlight? You see, Christ lived the life of complete holiness, worship, living a life of complete sacrifice, living a life completely for the building up of the church, living a life completely for the kingdom of God, living the life, listen, that you and I should live, that you and I don't live. And as we are stuck in our flesh, as we are stuck in our sin, and even though we know that we are to give all things and all passions and all glory to God, we so often are drifting back This lamb has died in our place. He has bled on our behalf and he has ransomed a people for God. He has bought us for God. He has done the work on our behalf for us. He has lived the life of complete self-sacrifice on our behalf for us. And as he died on the cross, His blood was shed for the remission of sins to cover every bit of our failings and our falling away and our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our forgetfulness, covered all of that. I want to, I want, I want to submit that it's only when we see this Lamb, it's only when we are regularly understanding and being reminded of this lamb who has bled for us. This is the eternal song that we will forever sing. It's only when we are reminded of that that we are now free. We are free to live the life that God wants us to live. So let me ask you, then in that sense, how much of your life how much of your life makes sense 
with that picture that we see? Where are you finding your greatest passions? Where are you finding your greatest excitements? Do they line up at all with eternity? Or are they simply found in things which are fading? Hoping that the next layer will be something that gives you passion, that gives you excitement, as opposed to something which is disastrous and painful. Can we peer through all of the layers of life and see that at the very core, at the very end, is a throne and a lamb? And this God is worthy of every bit of our life and it makes sense of every bit of our life. So may we not waste our fall. May we not waste our life. May we not waste our passions on temporary things. May we not waste our greatest excitements on things that will never make the history books of heaven. But may we pour ourselves out in a way that builds up the body of Christ, that demonstrates this great gospel of Jesus Christ, and that gives all glory to the Lamb which was slain. Pray with me. God, we want to be a people that live, uh, live our lives in a way that makes sense with what we read in the Scriptures. We don't want to... Uh, to live our lives for ourselves, for our own passions, for our own desires and fleshly purposes. And then to find that on the other side of eternity that we've wasted our time. We've wasted our passions. We've wasted our talents. But God, allow us to see this core, to see this throne, to be reminded of this beautiful truth. And may we today, this fall, may we throw all of our weightiness onto you. May we become a people that, that demonstrate the reality of the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.